Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large Podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all enjoying listening and reading. I'm having a, a, a wonderful day in the fact that I have been able to respond to quite a few people telling them I'm going to do this podcast today because they've reached out to me. Uh, my audience has asked me quite a few questions about number one, like, hey, what can I do to receive help? I've never had to apply for any of this stuff before. I've never uh, been vulnerable enough to ask for assistance. And I've also gotten a few emails of people like, hey, the, the government has completely dropped the ball here at a local, state, and federal level. What can I do to help out? And how can I support my brothers and sisters in the industry? So I, I'm very excited today that I've actually been able to find a person who can kind of share some insight on both of those questions. Uh, her name is Stephanie Freed. She is a production electrician as well as lighting designer and now co-director at extendpua.org. She is out of New York City. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here, Chris. So you are a lighting designer and production electrician out of New York City, and I can only imagine that you're in the same boat as most of my audience. They're like, well, I've been out of work since March what can we do? So I'm kind of interested to see what you have been able to do to uh, address your own situation as well as everybody else's. Sure. Uh, I have been out of work like many other people uh, since March. I'm a freelancer, so I'm used to being out of work a little bit uh, for very short periods of time. So at the beginning, when the pandemic started, I wasn't panicking at first. Um, I, I know how to go a couple weeks without work and I know work will come back. Um, but then it didn't, we saw our gigs start to get postponed in March and then they were postponed, postponed till July. And then we saw them just disappearing. Um, and it was pretty terrifying, uh, to not know when the industry comes back and to be faced with a disease that specifically makes it impossible for people to be in close quarters with each other, to be standing shoulder to shoulder and enjoying a concert or a show, um, it's also difficult because we find so much community in our work. Like all my friends are at work. And so we are here and I'm here in New York, isolated in my apartment. And as work started to disappear, it, be, it was possible to cope with those feelings of losing community and losing um, a career without having financial struggle necessarily because um, the federal government did take some action. They passed the CARES Act. Um, they had that $600 boost to unemployment. They added pandemic unemployment assistance so freelancers could receive some assistance. They made a lot of great, very quick choices. And 
we were all able to survive. Certainly, even with the $600, I was making considerably less than I make uh, in my salary as a person in New York City where the cost of living is pretty high. Um, mm -hmm. But I was able to survive on it. And uh, then it comes towards the end of July, and we see that this $600 is going to expire, even though cases are still rising. We still can't go back to work, and we still don't even know when we will be able to get back to work. So we can't even plan for what that looks like financially. So I saw my friends and my coworkers and our industry panicking and uh, hashtagging save the arts, save live, live entertainment, save live events. And as a person who's not done a lot of advocacy or gotten very politically involved, I wanted to do something. I, did, I, I don't sit down very well, which is true of so many people <laughs> in our industry. Um, so we uh, started looking into how you advocate for relief from the government. What do you do? How do you get involved? Uh, how do you make them hear your voice besides hashtagging on um, Twitter, which is actually sometimes effective? And it's not nothing. That's for sure. It's it's definitely not nothing. It's like it's kind of crazy how effective Twitter can be. But so we started looking into some other options, and we made a letter campaign where people could easily send a letter to their uh, legislators. And then we just started building more and more resources on this website, extendpoa.org. I built it with a collaborator and colleague, Grant McDonald, and he certainly. I started just writing my thoughts and language and like what we needed and looking into it. And he just made it this beautiful website. And it, um, I am blessed to be able to work with him in that way. Um, but there's call scripts. There's all of the contact information for legislators. Uh, it's, it's a hard time we're going through. And there's a lot of uh, trauma going on. So we, we thought it was really important to try to make taking this action easy because we know it's necessary that we take it. There's nobody lobbying for us. We have to lobby for ourselves, but it's hard. So we tried to make it easy and just put it all right out there. Um, so the website has 10 easy actions for things you can do because you have to. We have to do it. Um, and then we started taking the next step and we started becoming lobbyists, or I suppose, ourselves. Um, we've had 30 meetings with senators so far, and our goal in these meetings is to bring people to their own senators to talk about what they need and what's happening to them. And we've had a lot of live events and entertainment worker come with us just because that's who we are and that's who we're connected to. But we are trying to make sure we're advocating outside the industry as well, because the things we need, which are unemployment support and a boost and longer un unemployment benefits and healthcare relief and rent relief, those are the same things all unemployed workers need. So we're trying to make sure all of us great storytellers and people who understand production and um, with some access to celebrity and resources are advocating for everybody as well as ourselves. That's a great point. Our industry has been based on our ability to tell a great story and forever we've been advocating for other people. We've been so good at uh, bringing awareness to other people's messages and raising support and awareness for other people's causes that we're we're really not good at raising awareness for our own plight we're we're just we haven't been accustomed to asking for help uh, it's just not something that we've been celebrated for doing in our industry yeah and there's a certain level i think of vulnerability to asking for help that we don't necessarily have as an industry i think we feel very strong as people, uh, and we are. Um, 
and asking for help. I mean, I struggle with it personally, uh, especially with this with this organization that we need donations and we need volunteers for. And people come and say they want to help, and I don't know how to sometimes hand out tasks because I am used to handing out tasks as a production electrician to people who are employed to do them, not to people who are offering me their time and and, and money for free. It's hard to ask for help, and uh, there's a vulnerability to it, and I think our industry is not used to sitting in that vulnerability in our own way. It's like we're good at sitting in vulnerability and telling other people's stories. Mm. That's probably one of the, the strongest things that extendpua.org does is it actually provides this, the step-by-step process to asking for help because, number one, we've never had to do it. Number two, we don't really like doing it. We really need somebody's <laughs> to hold our hand to ask for help. It's, you know, it's, a, it's a tough process. So for even to have that resource available is, is so useful. Yeah, we hope that we hope that it is helping. We think we we try to make it meet needs that we had ourselves. We're unemployed workers. We know what we are looking for and what we need to survive, and so we try to make sure that's there. And we also know how hard it is to ask. So we're like, what needs do we have? What do we not understand? What do I not feel comfortable saying unless someone writes it in a script for me? But is what I need. Um, and tried to put it in this place. I have always been so thankful for the letter writing campaigns for that exact reason. Like I can write a letter to my to my senators and my congresspeople, but I never know exactly what to say because I don't have time to fact check everything that I'm saying. I don't know what has changed from Monday to Wednesday. And <laughs> it's always so helpful to have somebody else who has the time to put those into a letter so that I can just sign my name to it. I'm like, yeah, what she said, that applies <laughs> to me too. And I, and I always get a really good response from those letter campaigns. Yeah, I think it's important for actions, and this is kind of unfortunate, but it's important for actions to be easy. People are yes. burnt out. <laughs> yeah. People, and, 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 People don't know necessarily what to say. Like people can say, I'm not a writer. I'm not, I can't write a letter. And it's not true. You can write one, but if we can make it easier, we might as well. That's how we create a unified front. That's how we all uh, share the same message. Otherwise, who knows what sort of crazy demands we would all be coming up with. <laughs> it, we're, we're such a diverse bunch. I mean, some of us are uh, W-2, some of us are 1099. Some of us have been working for the same employer for 20 years. Some of us have different employers every 10 days. You know, <laughs> we, we all have such different requests that we need a unified message saying, look, we all need help and, and 600 bucks isn't going to do it. Right. And, and that's something we do stress at Extend PUA or, or we try to, especially in this industry is, if there's something that you need and we're not understanding it because we we are unemployed and we didn't realize, um, for example, I was speaking to someone the other day and she started talking to me about mortgage forbearance and I don't have a mortgage, I have rent. And so we've been really pushing rent relief because most of our community has rent that we know of. Um, but then she talked to me about mortgage forbearance and like the issues she's facing with that because of having also been, been unemployed in this industry for so many months. And 
so we can add that to our advocacy. So if there are things we don't know and aren't covering, we're open to them. We don't want to ever uh, pretend to know what everybody needs. We're doing our research. We're asking people. We're also doing like in-depth economic research that I never thought I'd be doing. Um, but we might not hit everything. And we are open to hearing from people and making sure we're, we're actually hitting people's needs. And that's why we take people to those meetings as well. It's not just like, this is what Stephanie thinks everyone needs. It can't be because that's not true. Right. Yeah. I remember when it was uh, two weeks to flatten the curve and we <laughs> all thought that that was going to be like, okay, you know, yeah, 600 bucks. That'll get me through. I'll, I'll be fine. We'll just right. stay home for two weeks. I'll Netflix and chill and then uh, order some food. Yeah. I needed and, a break. Uh, yeah. And I'll learn uh, disguise or I'll learn mm-hmm. unreal and we'll be right back and no big deal. We can, we can all do this. But uh, clearly there was some people that couldn't even do that. And we, we all had to go out and we couldn't even last two weeks. But uh, I met, I say that because you and I, we've been in the industry long enough that we all knew that, you know, three months of surplus we should always keep at least three months worth of money in our bank account. Yeah. For the first time, th- even three months won't cover us. It's uh, it's much more than three months. So yeah, and it's, and it's, it's none of our fault. No. And we have a lot of legislators in offices who speak to us with those kind of ideas. And like, first of all, the economy, the greater economy, our industry, I think we do have a lot of people who are able to survive for three months. I personally am able to survive for three months, and that's why I was able to start this organization. But there's so many people who aren't. Our economy is not built for people to be able to do that. And then our legislators talk like it is. They're like, well, everyone has savings, so we can do this. And it's like, no, you haven't built an economy where people have savings, especially people who are non-white in this country. Like, there's so much disproportionate problems that are built in and then the legislators act like we should all be in some certain position that they haven't built possible for us. Yeah. I feel like a lot of them are so far removed from you and I that they, they have a completely different set of priorities than us. Yeah. Um, I've the one that blows me away that I see uh, is corporate immunity being a, a, a priority in a lot of these stimulus and, and the, the packages that is so far removed from my top 15 list of priorities. Exactly. We did a we did a survey of workers and asked, we listed all of the things that could possibly be in relief legislation. And we listed corporate immunity just to give people the chance to say that's something they wanted if they did, because we know some small business people work with us and may see some benefits to that. And man, I think it got less than 10%. <laughs> yeah, I can name on uh, on one hand the people who I think would would be interested in that, and it, I, you know, it's it's definitely not something I would delay any sort of stimulus package or PUA package over. Yeah, and I think the problem to me is that actually corporate immunity is hinder is is a bad thing for workers in our workforce. I think that there is some. Uh, need, possibly. I'm not a business, so I don't know the in-depth conversation about this, but I think there's probably some need for our venues and our businesses to have some kind of liability protections 
just like insurance for patrons who might sue them, say, say they came to their venue and then sue them because they got COVID. But I don't mm-hmm. think there should be any liability protections against their own workers. Agreed. Like, what could you possibly do to workers if you have that kind of protection and you don't provide the things they need? You shouldn't need that protection against your workers, especially if our legislators are telling us, well, we're supposed to be reopening because there's no threat of the virus anyway. The same legislators that want corporate immunity say we can reopen. Why do you need five years of corporate immunity then? Just reopen. Yeah. I don't see any other way around that. If you if you don't think this is a big deal, then just open up and see what happens. Because it's, uh, yeah, I, I don't see why that would be worthy of being in the in a priority list. Yeah, but to be clear, I'm not saying that. I do think it's a big deal, and I do not think we should reopen. Um, but I also <laughs> don't think we should have corporate immunity. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I should have said that with more sarcasm. I wasn't dripping enough, so I will. <laughs> I will. Uh, I'll have my producer turn up the sarcasm there when I meant to, when I said that. Oh, please turn up mine too. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have seen a few people saying like, "Well, haven't." Haven't they done enough for us already? Like, what about uh, the people that have gotten their these massive payouts that uh, kept them afloat? And and I feel like that's the exception, not the rule. Is that what you're finding? I do find that to be the exception, and I'd like to hear from those people about their massive payouts um, because I think as a person who receives the maximum UI in New York, and I received the six hundred until it expired. That still wasn't, that was about 50% of my income in this industry. And so I was one of the people receiving the max I could from the government for until July and, and have been since. I've still received the max UI in New York, which is about $450, $450 a week. That's nowhere near close to what somebody makes in this business in New York City. Um, in addition, the fact that the 600 expired in July means that we've gotten the last five months on just state UI and PUA, which is not a livable wage. It wasn't intended to be. Unemployment was never intended to be a livable wage. It is meant to incentivize people who go on unemployment to return to work. It's a Band-Aid solution. Um, right. So, And that's why they, and they know that. That's why they added the $600. Um, but the fact that they let it expire in July and then it went five months without it, even people who maybe were able to save the 600 because they were staying at home and not necessarily spending as much, um, it's gone. It's been five months. You can't survive on 600 from a long time ago for five months. Um, especially since there are people in our in our group who've written out to, or in our community who've written to us. They're making as little as seven dollars a week on unemployment. So it's not like everyone's receiving the max benefit. The, the average benefit in Oklahoma is $44 a week. And that's what people have been surviving on for five months now. That's a, that's a way to tank the economy right there when people are, they're not going to make it. Yeah. You're tanking the economy and you're tanking this country's morale. Like we think we're, where, where is the faith that the government can take care of people in a pandemic? It's decimated. Uh, even as far back as the founders of the Constitution, that was the one thing that the Constitution is supposed to ensure is that the is that the government is there to ensure the well-being and the, 
at least the the base level standard of living for the the citizens. Right, and know. we pay taxes to make sure of it. <laughs> yeah. You know what I I have I've always I've grown up in the generation where collecting money from the government was stigmatized, but now as I get older, I'm like that's my money. I I need it right now. I would really like to have some of my money back. And right, I, like I we don't pay see thirty percent. I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to destigmatize that. You, like, hey, all that money I gave you, I could really use some of it right now. Let's uh, let's get let's get it going. Right, especially when you see uh, that's something that really we really struggle with when people um, come to us and tell us, "Well, you've gotten enough," or "Ah, we have some people who are employed." not necessarily in this industry, but who are employed are saying, I don't want to pay for unemployed people to not go to work because it has been stigmatized. <laughs> and because our yeah. legislators continue to stigmatize it, they keep pitting us against each other. Y'all, we paid for this. This is That's our money. money. <laughs> yeah. We paid yeah, taxes. This is... this is the first time I've been on unemployment. I've been paying taxes for over a decade and I pay a significant amount of taxes and I and they go, my taxes go to things I don't want them to go to. Why shouldn't they go to helping the millions of unemployed workers right now? Yeah, I'm an independent. So I pay uh, unemployment insurance as an employer and as an employee. Oh, and man. I, you're like, hey, give me that. I need it. So uh, moving on to the next one, uh, I would imagine one of the most offensive posters I saw didn't come from the U S I think it came from the UK, but it was basically saying that, you know, Hey, maybe this is a good time for you to enjoy the opportunity to look into another profession. Like, are you, are you shitting me? Oh my God. (laughs) Have you, have you been, have any of the senators that you've talked to like kind of even suggested that there is a lot of, from the senators and from, from, general public which is which is something that's so difficult is that is that the public is pitted against each other and like in this way but yes we have definitely heard get another job we got an email the other day to our extendpoa.org email just telling everyone that works at extendpoa to get another job um it's wow such garbage it's a garbage it's a garbage thing to say because first of all specifically to this industry but to a lot of other people as well we have careers. These aren't jobs. I've worked a long time to work myself up into a career and I am well-paid and I am uh, not in an entry-level position and I love my job. But not mm-hmm. only not only is it insulting, it's actually not possible right now. We are 10 million fewer jobs right now than we had pre-pandemic in the U.S. There aren't as many jobs as everybody seems to think there are. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of people in our industry have the bills and uh, lifestyle of someone who has been uh, well-paid in their career. And so finding a minimum wage job is, isn't going to pay their bills. So they're still going to struggle. So there's just so many rebuttals <laughs> to that argument. And it's just kind of a toxic way to look at it. Instead of saying, hey, everyone, we're going through a collective trauma. Let's support each other and ourselves through it, through our federal government taxes we have been paying, and then we will go back to our jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
the ones the ones that I feel the most for right now are the the single parents mm-hmm. because when they're out on the road or when they're doing their theater gigs, they can send the kids to school or to grandma or to a friend's place. And now you can't send your kids to school. You can't send them to somebody else's house and you can't work. You, you basically have to be home to make sure that your kid can go to school to get their, their education, which is a human right. And you have to be there to watch them or just make sure that they're on their, their zoom call. I mean, I don't know how somebody could be more confined than that. Yeah, I don't know. First of all, I don't know how parents are handling this pandemic at all. I'm not a parent, but like having to, first of all, your kids miss their friends. They miss being at school. So I imagine that's difficult. And then on top of that, you need to be their their educator and you need to be their parent and you need to be their only friend. Um, and I just can't imagine how they're doing it. And I, and, and there is no ability to go back to work that way. We right. have, we have so many, so many of the people that reach out to us are mothers, single mothers. Um, and those are some of the, the stories that uh, break my heart the most um, because they're trying to support their kids, educate their kids. And they also can't go to work and aren't being supported enough. We have so many specifically who are receiving less than $200 a week and they're trying to support these families of three. Uh, is, that's one specific woman, but actually it's, it's several that have reached out to us. Um, and we had one, mm. one mother reach out to us who she said she keeps going to job interviews, but she can't get a job because there's, they're just not hiring her. They say she's overqualified or she's underqualified because she's actually come from a pretty um, robust industry and now she's trying to find these pivot jobs that are uh low wage she can't get a job and so she lost her home and now she is living in her truck because she figured she she would keep her truck over her home so that she could continue going to job interviews so she's living in her truck with her kids and now she doesn't have money to get for gas so she can't go on job interviews anymore and it's getting cold and i just do not understand what is happening in america Oh man. Yeah. I can only imagine what that's like for somebody, uh, let's say, especially somebody like you to go with your resume to anything out of our industry and people just look at your resume like, Oh, American idiot, New York Yankees. Like what, what do you do? Right. And why do you want to be here? Like, well, I, I, I don't want to be here. I want to be doing what I love, but I mean, well, this is my resume and you can see that I have all these, great qualities. I can coordinate uh, large crews. I can tell a great story. I can re I can do uh, vector works. I can do all this stuff. And people are just like, yeah, how long are you going <laughs> to stick around for then? That's the biggest problem is either they don't think you have the skills because they don't know how to translate your skills, even though I have definitely made a pivot resume. It has not been successful so far, but, um, I also spend a lot of my time advocating. Um, but uh, the biggest problem you see in these interviews are the are they ask you, well, aren't you just going to go back to your, your, your career when it comes back? And you don't want to lie. Yes, absolutely. I'm going to go back to my career when it comes back. <laughs> they don't want to hire you. <laughs> yeah. 
that is the honest response. Like, yes, I don't want to work at your position any a day longer than I have to. It also means that I, if I did receive that job, I've taken that job from somebody else because there's 10 million fewer jobs. So me, a highly qualified person in the entertainment industry can't have a job here. So I go get a low wage job somewhere else, but then a worker who needed that job doesn't have any job. That's a lose, lose situation. Right. So maybe the federal government should just support us through the pandemic. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Another conversation that has come up is, and and I've, I've never actually seen it from one side. I've only heard it from the other side. People saying that, well, if you give people money from the federal government during the pandemic, they're not going to be incentivized to go do the few jobs that are available. And I've only heard people claim that it's happening, but I've never talked to a single person saying, you know what, I sure would love to go take that job offer, but you know, then I would have to give up my, my UI. Like what? You've never heard that because it's not being said. (laughs) Yeah. I've not one person that I've talked to said, Hey, I just got a job offer. I think I'm going to pass it up. We, if I, if I'm very honest about that, first of all, we hear that talking point more than we hear any other talking point, especially from senators. They always, especially when talking about that $600 boost, they talk about it being a disincentive to work. Um, we, we like when we hear that talking about because we have certainly grown a lot, a lot of rebuttals to it at this point. Um, first of all, there's data rebuttals. There are several studies out, and we have them on the website, from Yale, from the Chicago Fed. Uh, there's more. I can't remember them all right now. Um, but there are several statistical studies that prove that that's not true. Actually, there's a study from Groundworks Collaborative that proves that the $600 improved work searches and improved the success of them because people weren't so desperate. They were just searching for work and getting it. In addition to all that, we have, I have heard from maybe two people ever in this advocacy that they had been able to say no to a job to stay on UI, but those jobs were dangerous. What they were telling us was an employer wanted me to come do this job. They weren't going to provide PPP, PPE. They weren't going to provide any protections. It was incredibly low wage. It was a job they shouldn't have to take. And they didn't have to because they had this support during a pandemic. Now people are having to take even those jobs. They shouldn't have to. That's only prolonging the isolation period as far as I can tell. Right. That's why we're still here. It's because people have been pushed back into the workforce. Right. In ways that are unsafe. Like, obviously, if there's a work from home job you can take or a safe job you can take, absolutely. If it's going to pay your bills, I don't know anyone, especially in this industry, who doesn't want to work. I would love to be at my job, even if even if I went back and it paid not as much as I am making in UI. I don't, I don't care how much I'm making in UI. I care about purpose. I care about having my health care, which is a tied to a lot of jobs. Um, there's a lot of reasons to go to work besides money. And uh, most people see those benefits. Yeah. Our, our industry is not immune to the bottom feeders who will come out and say like, Hey, there's an entire labor force that will jump at anything right now. That's. And they are. Ooh. Yeah, there we're not are, immune. There are people taking advantage already. Yeah, to just have that 
just that comfort pillow to say like, mm, man, I, ugh, I, I don't like the sound of that one. To just be able to rely on your instincts and say, no, I wouldn't take that job if times were good. I'm not going to take them if times are bad. Right. If, if, some empl- if some company comes to you and asks you to come to a job that doesn't seem safe, you should have the ability to say no when we're in the middle of a pandemic that is killing our friends. You shouldn't have to take it, especially since we're in such a gig economy that you're probably taking only three days and losing unemployment for the whole week um, for a job that might not be safe. Why should we be forced to do that? Yeah. So one of the other ones that I've heard recently, and this one might have some teeth to it, but I think it's uh, like, again, I think it's the exception to the rule. But if the government were to just start handing out money without vetting the who gets the the, the proper amount and what uh, and for what purposes, that people who don't need the money will also be getting money. Does, does that come up often? It does. And it especially comes up right now when they're talking about these $2,000 stimulus checks instead of the $600. People are so worried that people are going to get more money than they should. And I think my first instinct personally is why? Why are we worried about it? Like if 2000, if somebody gets 1400 extra dollars in their bank account, the likelihood is because, first of all, because there's a cap, there is a cap no matter what of $100,000 income of 2019 or something like that. Um, okay. So it's not necessarily the richest people. Um, but the likelihood that that money goes back into the economy is still pretty high. People, pretty high. People, even if they have jobs, are going to spend it on takeout, which gets our small businesses back. Like, I just don't understand uh, the the massive amount of people who really need that money not getting that money because a few people might get too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And like you said, it's just going to go right back into the American businesses. Right. And, and I don't believe that people who are millionaires should be getting the $2,000. I don't think it's built for them to do that. And if it is, we should fix that. It should have a cap on it that doesn't give it to people who are making crazy amounts of money. But you also have to be so careful because even that $100,000 cap that was on the first stimulus check, it was for 2019 income. So anybody who did well in 2019 but has now been unemployed for nine months didn't get a stimulus check. Got it. Yeah, it, that all seems like a, a clerical decisions can be made to fix those those minor issues. Right, like just try to fix the issue instead of saying we're not going to give people money. <laughs> okay. Yeah, don't throw the baby it. out with the bathwater there. It's there's there's a gem there that needs to happen. Yeah, something we've been advocating for very strongly right now is because that $600 expired in July, we've been uh, pushing for a retroactivity solution because they brought $300 boost back onto unemployment in December, but it started the day the bill passed instead of going back and dealing with these five months of people getting as little as $7 a week. um, Like you can't just have payments in 2021. Now we have debts from 2020 that are going to keep people down in this industry for years trying to recover. We already, there, one of our uh, big advocates in Arizona, he's, he attended all of his senators meetings. Uh, he's already lost his home. He's, he's 
in his 50s in our industry and like has a very established career and he's lost his home. He's sleeping on a couch of a friend and like $300 now doesn't help him get his home back. He has to back pay rent. He has to, there are so many debts accrued. Um, but we know that there, that that's a tricky line to toe to get that retroactivity. So we've, we've been working on a solution that, and it just, seems like a thing the federal government should be able to clerically figure out, like give the retroactive mm-hmm. payments to people who were unemployed for that period of time. And also on top of that, give them to people with an income cap of, uh, I don't know, $50,000, make the income cap lower for 2020 so that people who are also underemployed in addition to the unemployed can get some support. Yeah. We've definitely exposed all the weaknesses of the safety net. Uh, we've, we've definitely shown there's some gaping holes and it's probably come from sent from generations of voting against our own safety net. Right. But now we're like, uh, now that we're all falling into it, we're like, Oh man, there's a lot of holes in the safety net. Yeah. It's really remarkable. Um, how so many of us who have not been hurt by the system are now finally seeing the system (laughs) and seeing how much it is not built for workers. It is not built for people. It is built for corporations. It's built for people with money, even in, and this might be a bit of a side swing tangent, but even in our own industry, something we're seeing that's, uh, that falls into the microcosm of the bigger, uh, federal government being run by the by being run by money is like, we're seeing this big advocacy for legislation that, helps our businesses be more successful than legislation that helps our workers. Um, and that's really frustrating. Um, like the, the huge push for restart, we we support restart and we are also pushing for it. And we also, we were advocating for save our stages when it came through, but none of that small business legislation in our industry helps workers specifically. Some workers can get PPP loans and can get and can benefit from those programs, which is why we continue to push for them. And it's important to keep our businesses afloat. But what's unique about our industry and what really we need to be working on telling people because it is unique is that our workforce is different from other industries and in that it is predominantly freelance. We aren't, you don't save this industry by saving our businesses like you might if you saved all restaurants and they could bring back all of their employees, their employees. So that helps them. But in this industry, you could save all of our businesses and the freelance workforce would still struggle. Yeah. A lot of the, a lot of the larger companies in our industry have maybe 10% of the people that work for them are their employees. Right. The other 90% are freelancers. Exactly. And they won't see a PPP loan. I mean, unless they get one individually, but they're not going to see, I'm a freelancer. I work for several small, small businesses in New York who received PPP loans and I'm glad they received them because I want to go back and work for them later. Um, but I didn't see that money and I won't, I need unemployment. And that's why we started. And that's why we continue to push all of our industry representatives. Like that's why we joined, we can, we make events for the restart red alert action is because we were, we said you can't just advocate for businesses in this industry. You have to include workers needs. So you kind of touched on something that is, uh, is larger than the whole here. It, we're not just talking about theater. 
We're not talking about just touring. We're talking about entertainment industry as a whole. And that includes uh, group sales. That includes uh, bartenders. That includes security. That includes waitresses. I mean, it's that's all part of the entertainment gathering industry. So we are much larger than we than we could ever imagine that we are. Right. And even even beyond the directly affected people like you listed, we have these incredible ripple effects. When Broadway is closed, the hotels in Times Square aren't getting enough uh, people to hire workers. Like there's millions of ramifications uh, into the greater workforce, our industry effects. And it's really incredible because it does show like how much we are a driving force in this economy. But right now it's really terrifying and we have to keep all of those people afloat. Yeah. And uh, without this level of precaution, we're just going to prolong this. The the longer we deny that this is a real thing, the longer this is going to endure. Exactly. I don't know any any better way than to take care of the people to get us through this. I mean, that's who needs this the most. Right. And, and the best thing about taking care of the people is that trickle-up economics does work. Trickle-down economics does not, but trickle-up economics absolutely does work. If you support workers through this, first of all, they survive and they can go back to their jobs. And then second of all, they spend money. We're worried Mm -hmm. about our small businesses. We're worried about our restaurants. We're worried about all of these things. But like, if you support workers, we can, we can fuel the economy. We can buy takeout and keep our restaurants open. My, my favorite restaurant just closed that's around the corner and um, they're hoping to come back, but they're not getting enough takeout orders. But like, I can't afford takeout right now. So I can't even support them. That's where the money would be coming from. It would I can only imagine the the return on investment for a good stimulus right now would be exponential, you know, in morale and in monetary value. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the first thing I would pay if I received payments isn't takeout for sure. Like the the bigger problem um, is that people haven't been able to pay their rent. I'm on, I'm behind on rent. It's not a thing I like to say out loud, but I've been at risk of losing my apartment throughout this crisis because my rent is high in New York. And I had just gotten to a point in my career where I could afford a one bedroom in New York. I don't have roommates for the first time. It was like this huge accomplishment and huge breath of relief because I had been having so uh, much stress from having roommates. And I finally got to live on my own last year. Um, and then the pandemic happened and I was like, oh my gosh, my rent, I could never pay it. I've been renting my apartment out to frontline workers and nurses who've been coming to New York for COVID and staying with my parents because it's just not, $400 a week doesn't pay New York rent, especially not with utilities and then healthcare. Like, no, it doesn't. Basic necessity. We are in an incredible amount of debt of basic necessities right now that the stimulus will, it's not stimulus at this point, it's survival, as a lot of people have been calling it. It's a survival payment. And then further continued stimulus will help the economy. Yeah. Little side tangent shout out to anybody who has roommates right now. Oh my uh, God. Especially the touring people who used to be like, well, yeah, I've got some roommates there, fine, but I'm never home. I'm, you know, I'm out on the road nine months out of the year. I only spend three months 
out of the year with my roommates. And now here you are with all of the people that, that uh, are up in your house day in and day out. So shout out to all you guys. We, we feel for you. Yeah. Congratulations on be- making it this far. It's been so many months. That's I hadn't even thought about that. Wow. So I'm looking at a lot of your asks on the extend PUA. There's some of the requests and some of the recommendations. Yes. I, I have to be maybe overly honest here, but I currently live in Canada. I'm an American, but I live in Canada. And all of these requests are not above and beyond things that are happening up in Canada. I think that's true everywhere, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want to diminish any of the things that you're asking for, but these are just the basic base level requests that are already taking place in places that are faring much better than the American economy. Yeah. And I wonder, so, so does that mean people in other, for instance, for instance, in Canada, are people worried? Are they advocating for more than we're asking for? Are people just feeling easier? I think they're just feeling easier. I I'm seeing a lot of business owners that are they're clearly upset that they can't go to work and make a hundred percent of the profits that they're accustomed to. But at the same time, they're also willing to just stay home to save lives. There's there. I'm seeing a, a general consensus of people going like, well, yeah, we couldn't, we can afford to just take two weeks off. We can afford to admit that we're not an essential service at the moment. And they can, they're, they're able to take the necessary precautions to protect lives. Uh, wow. I don't want to, I don't want to sound like I'm overstating, but that is what they're doing. That just sounds like exactly what should be happening everywhere. We shouldn't be panicking. We should not, like, there's enough reasons to panic with a virus that's killed the industry. We shouldn't be panicking about also how to afford rent. Um, I think the the base level has risen significantly based on the fact that Canada has universal health care. I can, I can only imagine the people that have lost their jobs and their health care at the same time. That's got to be so frightening. I would imagine that, that puts them in a very desperate situation. It's millions of people too. It's not just like that's... Uh, a small percentage of people, millions of people have lost their healthcare in this pandemic. And either that means they lost it completely or they found some other way to pay for it, but not some other way. They found some other coverage and it costs an extremely large amount of money here. Um, So not only are they having to pay rent on unemployment, they are now having to pay for health insurance on unemployment, which when I was searching for health insurance for this coming year, it was like $700 a month. For you, you're young and healthy. I'm young and healthy. I am over 30. So once you hit that over 30 mark, it just like skyrockets because you're not able to get catastrophic insurance anymore. But that's just for a single person. It's not for a family. Seven, you could, I mean, that's a Lexus. You could be leasing a Lexus for that. 
Right. And I mean, there's certainly cheaper options. I think the cheapest I could find health insurance for was about $400 a month, which is still ridiculous, but it affords you nothing. It, you still have to pay for emergency room appointments and everything. So I was like, well, if I'm going to have to pay for some stuff anyway, I might as well get a better plan. But then I just ended up getting no health insurance because it all just seemed insane. So on a economic level and a morale level, that is terrifying. Right. Because then there's a pandemic. <laughs> there's a pandemic and the bills coming out of this pandemic have been crazy. I don't, I have not gotten COVID thankfully, but the bills I've seen from COVID are insane because you're in the hospital for long-term stays. You need a lot of equipment. I just, this, it's such a big compounded problem. Like I don't understand. And there's testing and like some of the testing is free, but often it's not. And well, even free testing is just enough to say, yep, you have it. So you either have to uh, sell your house to pay for your cover to pay for your health care, or you have to go back to work to pay for it, or you just stay home and do nothing. I, I wouldn't even know what to do at that point. Like you, you've lost you've you basically lost every option available. Right, and you're just terrified all the time. <laughs> Uh, so one of the things I love about your website is the take action page where it's very clearly laid out. These are 10 things that you can do and they're, that's just in a very direct order. And it's, it's very clear that these are some things that you can do. Yes. So we, that is our, our main mission. I think at extend PUA is to make it as easy as possible, um, and if there's something that would make it easier, we are open to being told what that is via email. Um, but right now we have a petition. A petition is literally the easiest thing you can do to advocate for relief right now. All you have to do is sign your name. Um, I think put your zip code in or something like that. We also specifically picked a uh, platform to host that petition on that doesn't take your personal information and give it around to people on the platform who want to advocate for similar things like a lot of platforms do. We are the only people that get your information. And I think that's really important. Right on. That is, that is very important. I know there's still a lot of people who respect their privacy, even in the midst of uh, needing to support one another. Yes. And the, uh, also on that take action page are, are ways to call your legislators, which is what we've found to be the most effective. Um, there's, the, there's these writing letter campaigns. We have one of those as well, a new one that we just launched today. Um, but calling really does make a difference. Um, and it's hard to make people call because it feels like you're just being repetitive. We've, we've been calling for the last six months every day talking about these things, but they, they log every call and, and they set their legislative priorities and their priorities for the day and their priorities for conversations based on how many calls they receive about things or how many letters they receive about them. So even if it feels futile, it doesn't take that long. So you can just do it and you can leave voicemails. You don't have to talk to people if you don't want to. Um, and then we're going to restart our senator meetings for this new push for retroactivity. Um, it's really important that we receive retroactive relief at this point. And so we're going to restart meetings and talk to them about it because the 600 was talked about when it expired. And uh, as we're reaching this benefit cliff, 
uh, that was talked about when it was happening. But this retroactivity issue isn't being talked about enough. It's not um, in a lot of legislators' minds. It's not on the press because uh, I don't frankly know. I think that they think a lot of people think the issue has been solved. They said, oh, we passed relief in December. Check. We did it. That relief was so insignificant compared to what was necessary. Um, and so we have to make sure people know about that. And we can. We have opened the doors in these last six months to be able to do that. And so we have to keep going. It's so easy for them to say, look, we, we slapped a Band-Aid on it. It's all done, right? I'm like, No, no, you didn't solve anything. You just stopped the bleeding. Uh, you've, be- you've barely prevented the hemorrhaging from hitting the floor. That's, that's not enough. And they put it off later. They were like, well, for unemployment, we're going to not do any retroactive relief. And we're going to do a little bit of relief now, but it's going to expire in March. This industry is not going to be at full throttle in March. I wish it were, but I think that's pretty unlikely. No, especially with all the new different variants and uh, it's becoming more contagious and it's, we we are not taking any steps, at least, at least not the, the necessary steps to get back and definitely not March. Right. Cool. So we are almost out of time, but for the, for the few people that have actually reached out to me and said like, hey, what more can we do to help out? There is also a place where you can donate to Extend PUA to help fund the website and make sure that Stephanie and her team still can keep going and still keep advocating for us. You know, every little bit counts. It's definitely a one way of something that you can do to make sure that there are people that can continue to amplify their voice and get it out into the public. So if anybody is listening and they're in that sort of position where they they have some money to help out, please consider making a donation at extendpua.org to to reach out to your brothers and sisters to make sure that we can all get through this together. I really appreciate you saying that. We definitely uh, struggle to fundraise uh, because we refuse necessarily to ask our, our base of unemployed people to, to, to donate to a cause that is asking them to also advocate for more support. Like most of the people that are speaking to us don't have um, the resources to do that. So we appreciate you bringing that up. Well, right on. Thank you so much for your time, Stephanie. I really appreciate it. And, and I'm eternally grateful for all that you're doing. There's a lot of people that have not been willing or able to be able to take these steps. So I, uh, I appreciate you uh, taking the time and the effort to put all this together. It's a great way to uh, not deal with my personal mental health, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that is that is very honest and vulnerable. <laughs> um, as long as it can help people that I think that's, uh, at least it's a good outlet for extreme despair over what's that happening. That is a, <laughs> is a much better coping mechanism than say uh, hitting the bottle or anything. It's, at least right. you're, you're being the change you want to see in the world. Exactly. And uh, we do want to say that um, our work is not fueled by us. It is fueled by people actually doing the things on the website and coming to the meetings and interacting with us on social media. It is fueled by everyone getting involved. We couldn't do the few of us. We have a good volunteer team. We have a great team of volunteers. Um, but our work doesn't work unless people take action. So thank you for everyone who has been. Thank you for reaching out to us and amplifying the work. Um, and we hope more people want to get involved, take some action, come volunteer with us if you want. 
Yeah, I think the most important thing here is that that we all know that we're standing next to Stephanie when she goes and makes all these comments and does her advocacy. It's not Stephanie says so, it's because Stephanie plus 10 million strong say so. Yeah, and the 10 million strong is the important part. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Stephanie. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Chris. I do appreciate you and everybody listening. <laughs>